All right, welcome back to Horse Talk. Dr. Yardley here, Dr. Timko. We are going to finish up part three of Colic. We left you guys last with horses uh, in anesthesia land uh, getting colic surgery. We talked about different types of colic surgeries and recovery from colic. So now we are kind of picture the story. We're going to walk your horse back from the recovery area to the ICU for the horses where we are gonna do a couple different things to manage the horses post-op. So kind of like a step-down unit, uh, like you would be in a hospital. Dr. Timko, what were some pretty normal things that we would do for say, let's kind of differentiate between a large colon, so like a large colon displacement, and then a small colon. So I think the large colon's a little easier to deal with or think about. Yeah, those guys tend to recover a little bit faster and have less complications than the ones that have small intestinal surgeries. They'll get back to their stall. Anybody, no matter whether it's small intestine or large intestine, they'll usually go on IV fluids, just have a period of recovery from anesthesia before we attempt to give them any type of food or water orally, since usually they're kind of shaky and still waking up from anesthesia for a few hours after they're, they're back in their stall. Yeah, they're pretty wobbly, blowing yeah. off the <laughs> anesthetic gases. So the IV fluids is good to keep them hydrated? Mm-hmm. Yep, they you know are on IV fluids during the anesthesia process, but not during the recovery process, and we're not going to be giving them large amounts of water to drink right away, so we want them to stay nice and hydrated, so they'll all go on IV fluids, and those fluids are often supplemented with the electrolytes that they need as well that they usually obtain from their food. Because they're usually their ionized calcium gets low, right? Yeah, so they get a lot of calcium from their food, and when they're not eating, that can start to go down, and that affects their GI motility and their muscles as well. So we want to keep their calcium up, um, as well as things like magnesium and potassium within normal limits. It's all something we add to the fluid. We have to be careful, right? You don't mm -hmm. want to put too much potassium in there. Yeah, so we'll, that's part of the reason that we'll be running blood work on them as well to see how much they need and if they need, and need anything. So we want to titrate that just right for them. Because too much potassium could stop their heart. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We see that with uh, blocked kitty cats, right? Mm -hmm. That can't pee. They have high potassium levels. And probably the foals with the ruptured bladder yeah, get high yeah. potassium levels. So definitely don't want too much, but without yeah. it, it'll also affect their heart. So yeah. you want that one to be kind of right, right in the middle. I feel like that's always like the drug people talk about of like, you know, committing murder with yeah. potassium. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to trace. It's hard to trace. So <laughs> if there's any uh, murderers listening to this podcast, <laughs> which is not our genre, I guess potassium would be untraceable because <laughs> yeah. the cells would the cells would probably like lice once you're dead, right, and release yeah, more I don't potassium. Think there's a way to yeah, track necessarily it. Necessarily know after. Yeah. All right. Well, so if, uh, if we find your husband deceased, we'll <laughs> have to check the potassium logs, Doctor Timko. <laughs> All right, so so that's a large home. Probably put them on pain meds. Yeah, these guys, I mean, if anybody has ever had surgery, it's going to be painful, soft tissue pain just around the incision. Uh, so these guys are on anti-inflammatories, mostly banamine, to kind of help control some of that pain. And in some places they do use Equiox. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be a little safer. Yeah, safer on the kidneys. It's going to be more specific and less likely to affect the kidneys or cause GI ulcerations. Yeah, I'm not sure if we uh, use that here. but Yeah, I think we usually start with banamine and then maybe kind of wean them off to Equiox, but yeah. either way, they're both kind of 
going to do the same thing for them. Yeah, so we just need some pain meds for them. Antibiotics, we usually keep maybe large colons on antibiotics. Yeah, yes, and, no. and this is kind of controversial or kind of in the middle of doing more research, investigating how long these horses actually need to stay on antibiotics. We want them to have antibiotic coverage if there was any sort of contamination in the surgery or any risk of that, but also weighing, you know, preserving our antibiotics and not causing antibiotic resistance. So we do use them, but we're trying to figure out, you know, the best length of time to use these. And I would imagine post-op healing for their microbiome, Mm -hmm. more antibiotics is probably bad. Yeah, so there's a lot of good and bad things about them and trying to find the the right amount of time to yeah. use them. Yeah, so we're in a multi-centric study here, mm-hmm. us, North Carolina, I think Penn and yeah. some other school, Colorado, UC Davis, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that data will have a probably pretty big set of data and hopefully they show no difference and mm-hmm. we can decrease our antibiotic usage and, and cost. Like antibiotics yeah. for a horse is what, 100 bucks a day? Yeah, a lot of them are on K-Pen and that's about $100 a bottle, so it's pretty expensive. And how much do they go through in a bottle a day? Uh, At least a bottle to two bottles a day, depending on the size of them. It is expensive. It is a human drug, so Mm -hmm. probably why it is expensive as it is. When I was a student, I'm really old, uh, we had some anthrax scares in K-Pen, not like in the world, like 2006, 2005, yeah. Dr. Timko looked at me like I got exposed to anthrax. Yeah, then I'd be dead. Um, but you know, it was in the mail and stuff. So the U.S. government uh, hoarded all the K-Pen. So mm-hmm. we had no yeah. K-Pen usage in 2005 because the government was stockpiling it. Just in case. Just in case. So um, we had to use ampicillin. It seemed to work pretty good. That's a large colon. Those horses will go home in yeah, five to seven days, yeah. maybe quicker. Usually, you know, if they have surgery overnight, we'll start to refeed them in a couple couple hours after they wake up even and just kind of give them a handful of hay and gradually refeed them the sooner we can kind of refeed these guys the better it is for their their GI tract and the large colon ones tend to be able to be refed much faster than the small intestine ones so now you're talking about the small intestine horses so those are our older horses maybe with the strangulant like mm-hmm. poma um, we didn't even mention my favorite word epiploprimin entrapment mm-hmm. last week which is small intestine can dive into there mesenteric rent, all the causes of small intestinal lesion. So if we have to do resection and astomosis, we have to remove segments of the horse's small intestine. The intestine doesn't like that. It doesn't really like to be touched either. Uh, it gets really inflamed when we touch it, so we try not to handle the intestine that much. Those horses are most likely going to vomit or reflux mm-hmm. at us for a couple days um, out their NG tube. We can't feed them, right? No. Yeah, anything that goes down might come back up in these guys so some of them do really well and that's not the case but like you said others we we check and make sure they don't have any reflux and if that's happening then we're delayed on that refeeding process and we'll definitely keep these guys on IV fluids mm-hmm. and they're gonna be at a high risk for laminitis potentially anytime there's more inflammation or more just intensive management on these horses or having fevers they're gonna be at a potentially higher risk for complications like laminitis so sometimes these horses will also be in ice boots the whole time in case they're at risk for for developing that and then sometimes we have to aggressively start them on pain meds so more than just NSAIDs we'll put them on a 
morphine lidocaine mm -hmm. drip or morphine lidocaine ketamine drip, MLK drip, or just straight lidocaine drip. Yeah, the lidocaine can sometimes help increase the motility in their small intestine, so also helping with pain and sepsis even. But we can utilize the lidocaine for a couple reasons, and that might be the, the first line if your horse is refluxing post-op to use lidocaine. Yeah. When they can't feed them, it's not ideal because they're not getting any nutrition into them. Um, and I know some surgeons, it's very expensive, will start them on partial, a total parental nutrition. Mm -hmm. So they start them on IV nutrition, which is probably going to be a couple hundred dollars a day, I yeah. would imagine. And depending on the horse, that might be more important than others, depending on their body condition. Horses that are certain breeds, like Tennessee Walkers or Morgan horses or horses that are overweight that don't eat, they have more complications if they don't get nutrition right away versus, you know, a quarter horse or a standard bread, so they might have to start on those nutrition um, supplements sooner. So you would think it was the other way around, mm -hmm. but because they are pulling all their fat stores, they get hyperlipidemic. Yeah, bad for their liver, and then you have a whole other situation on your hands that's hard to treat too. Yeah, it's the same with cats. Cats yeah. get fatty liver also. As a student, we, I had a cat, one of my cats, this scared me, this cat, it would try to bite me and scratch at mm -hmm. me every day. I had to pull its blood glucose and every day and I would have Joe hold it and I'd bring Joe six packs of beer because I was scared of cats and he'd be like, you want to, you know, I was a little student and I would, I would be able to get the blood, but the cat was so jaundiced. It was stuck yeah. in the attic or like in the roof or something for like and two weeks eat. and didn't eat and he was pretty sick. I think we did save him. A cat scared the shit out of me. I'm really scared of cats. Horses will do the same thing. Yeah, horses do the same thing. They won't scare me though. Yeah. <laughs> you can do their blood work a little easier. I can do their blood work a little easier and not fear for my life. And miniature horses mm -hmm. and donkeys. donkeys yeah. yeah. So we'll put them on that. And, you know, even regular horses probably told, if you can afford it, it's mm -hmm. not wrong if your horse is vomiting. Yeah, not eating. They need nutrition. They need nutrition. And so our small intestine horse is going to take, I don't know, 7, 14 days yeah, maybe? Yeah, they're going to be in the hospital a little bit longer. It's going to be longer before we can even start that refeeding process. And that refeeding process takes a lot longer in these ones, too. We get your horse home, which is happy story. You cannot get on it right away, right? You can't You're not go going to the show the next week. Oh, no. What are we going to do? So that horse is going to just be in a stall for probably the first month, aside from maybe a couple 10, 15-minute hand walks once or twice a day. Can we turn them out eventually? Eventually. So then, you know, month number two, they can start going out in some small paddock turnout. Um, we even have some specifications on sizes, so no bigger than kind of 40 by 40, so definitely bigger than your stall, but not a large paddock. We don't want them running around and acting goofy since they've been in the stall for the last month. Yeah, not going too fast. Mm -hmm. And then we can finally, at day 45 or 60, post-op, probably. So we talk about post-op. I would say probably when you go home, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. let's count starting days, <laughs> not the actual day, because they're... I think when your horse is in the hospital, it's not feeling very good. It's probably not healing very quickly. Like yeah. Let's say when the horse is healthy enough to go home, we'll start start the countdown. Mm -hmm. So 45 to 60 days, you can get on this back mm -hmm. and walk them under a saddle. So Do some tack walking, and they've probably lost some muscle mass in this time, so you can kind of start working on, on that and getting them then ready for the next kind of 60 to 90 days after they're home, getting them back out to normal exercise and turnout. Still no galloping, though. Yeah, no galloping, no jumping. Yeah. Wait for three months for that. Yeah, we really want the incision to heal all the way. The sutures, 
you know, the body should be healed by there, but the sutures, we want to make sure that it's really healed really well, even though there's like a midline is where the incision is. So they're, you know, like a human, if you or I get surgery, we stand upright and we don't put a ton of weight on our abdomen. A horse though, all its weight is mm -hmm. on its abdomen. So um, we are really cre crucial that, that all that heals yeah. very well. And sometimes you do see some hernias, mm -hmm. like there's a little parts will bust open and the surgeons tell me as long as the skin is tight, it's good. I don't know. I mean, that's what they tell me. So still makes me a little nervous. You can ultrasound those so if you're worried about it. I have ultrasound at some post-op where you can make sure the linea looks together mm -hmm. and there's a strong muscle layer uh, between uh, the skin and the body and the body wall. All right. So that is kind of post-op colic. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that kind of wraps up that. So we had talked about diarrhea as a sign of colic. So what are, so kind of shifting paces. So we know a diarrhea horse is not going to go to surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would be some of the clinical signs that a client might see in the field, but not, not necessarily think they need to come to the hospital. And other species like your dog or cat, you know, if they get into something that doesn't agree with them, they might have some kind of runny diarrhea that you don't think too much of, but in the horse, you should always think that that's pretty important to tell your vet about. So aside from diarrhea, these guys might just be kind of lethargic um, and appetent. They might be febrile or if they've had a disease process going on for a while, they might even have um, what we call ventral edema. So kind of stalking up of their distal limbs or under their abdomen have this layer of swelling that you can kind of push your fingers into and make a dent. Yeah, pitting edema. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because they lost a lot of protein. Mm -hmm. So once they start having diarrhea, they start to have some protein. What about if they, like when you guys say they have, the horse has internal diarrhea? Sometimes what we'll do is come out to these guys that just aren't acting right. They're inappetent, maybe have a fever. They haven't shown any diarrhea in the stall or outward signs of diarrhea but we put the ultrasound on them and in their colon or their cecum, which is kind of equivalent to your appendix, they might have a ton of swirling fluid in there and it should normally not, not be fluid filled. So that kind of lets us know that the colon isn't maybe processing this fluid normally and absorbing the fluid as it should and maybe it's not coming out yet, but um, it's kind of impending diarrhea. So pre-diarrhea? Pre-diarrhea. <laughs> Definitely had cases of pre-diarrhea, mm -hmm. and we warned the client that maybe we should go to the hospital ahead of time. In case this is about case to happen. In case it gets worse, and 50% are okay with that. The other mm -hmm. people wait for the diarrhea to occur. And I think it's important to note that just because they're not having that diarrhea that you can see, they can still get really dehydrated from this because we call it kind of third spacing so that fluid that's in their colon isn't available to them to have in their bloodstream so even though it's not outside of their body it's not made available to them so they can still be dehydrated yes and horses can third space third space is a cool concept mm -hmm. right like it's horses own bodies carrying fluid around like their lungs can third space mm -hmm. with too much fluid in their lungs or their abdomen timco said it's not in their blood uh, doesn't have the volume, but it's elsewhere in the horse. Yeah, you might not um, see it, but <laughs> yeah, but it's there when we do blood work. The mm -hmm. horse becomes severely dehydrated, um, and I'm sure its electrolytes will be off. Yeah, It'll look like a third space. Yeah, I don't know humans' third space. I don't know how much space they have to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably some. I'm sh assuming for humans that like get stabbed in the liver, right, and bleed. Yeah. 
internally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that would be a third loss, be a third space internal bleeding maybe. Yeah, I think our our colitis is a little different than horses. Yeah, our colitis in a human. Yeah, colitis I think different in a human. I don't get third space. Yeah. It just goes out of them. It's gone. And in a dog, they just kind of yeah. like paint the walls mm -hmm. with poop. It's so gross. Dog poop is gross. Um All right. So they might not have diarrhea externally mm -hmm. but we can see an ultrasound we're gonna ultrasound them anyways though right yeah. any, any, probably any lethargic horse we're gonna ultrasound yeah we're not sure what's going on with them so the ultrasound can give us a really good picture of you know trying to figure out what's what's happening inside and i'm probably going to do a serum on yeah. this uh inappetent horse mm -hmm. so but even if we either too early it might not even be elevated yet. Week exactly, we had a horse that has a fever, their serum amyloidae, which is a marker of a acute inflammation, wasn't that elevated, but later on in the course, even after the horse was improving, it kind of went up. So sometimes we miss that peak and we catch it on its way down. Yeah, so starting your veterinarian will do on the farm. Um, probably do a lactate level if you think it has internal diarrhea too. Yeah, see how hydrated, how much they're perfusing. So people are always like, what causes diarrhea? Because the horse, you know, didn't didn't eat raw chicken. Mm -hmm. How did it get its salmonella? Some horses are what we call just kind of chronic asymptomatic carriers of salmonella, and they'll just start shedding it in the environment. They might not be sick from it, but they could get another horse sick from it. So you could have another horse on the property that, that started shedding it, and they can come into contact with it. Horses have their own coronavirus that's different from the one that we've been dealing with, and that one also causes diarrhea in horses. Usually in the winter. Usually in the winter, but kind of it's on the list all year round, but we do kind of consider it more of a winter disease. But if they're around other horses or at a show and yeah. come back with some diarrhea, that's definitely on the list. And in some of the research we've done at Ohio State on salmonella shedding, mm -hmm. uh, animals that are transported more mm -hmm. are more likely to have salmonella. And we participated on some research here. We pulled your horse's poop samples. Um, and sent them to the lab, and most of the horses that were positive were, in fact, horses that showed a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, trailering. Yeah, yeah, trailering, and, you know, the horse might have salmonella. We might detect it later, but it's not there anymore. Waxes and wanes, but the horse probably still has it inside inside of itself. Salmonella is a, a big one that we worry about. Some other infectious ones are going to be clostridial species, mm -hmm. which can also be from the environment. And then this time of year, especially, we're diagnosing Potomac horse fever as a cause. Potomac horse fever. Mm -hmm. How do they get that? So that is from an organism that lives kind of in the mayfly. And even if you don't live by water, doesn't mean that those mayflies, caddisflies, aren't around. And the horse can ingest that. And then that's how they become infected. It's a Neurocassiristiae, a bacteria, mm -hmm. right? It lives in snails and then gets out of the freshwater snail and the mayfly and caddisfly eat it and then the horse accidentally ingests it. Pretty common in Ohio. Yeah, anytime we have a fever of unknown origin, we kind of have that on the list as well. Yeah. So PHF, super common in Ohio. It was discovered in Ohio, right? By Dr. Ricky Hisa, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, a lot of research on it. And maybe won a, a Nobel Prize or... No, I don't know if she won a Nobel Prize. She won some big science award for it. Yeah, she's a famous scientist here. Um, yeah. And then they also, the of, um, of facts of the day, the brown bat can also carry PHF. Mm -hmm. And that then that life cycle was discovered here. Yeah, so. pass it in their feces. And, and the horses eat it. 
spreads out. And you would think that the horse would not eat mayfly. This just blows my mind that horses eat mayfly and caddisflies, but they still get it. And the Potomac horse fever was named after it was originally found, right, in the Potomac River mm-hmm. area in, like, 1978. It's all across America now. It's super prevalent yeah. in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, but... Ontario, Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's gotten everywhere. I think as climate is changing, Potomac horse fever time of year is changing. Yeah, we see it all winter time. Now. Yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, those are kind of the big, the big ones. The Clostridium though is pretty rare. Most of the time, we don't worry about that too much in our adult horses unless they've been on an antibiotic and they have antibiotic-induced colitis. We see that a lot more often in our young neonatal foals that get Clostridial diarrhea. And they pick it up from the from and, the yeah, environment. and they yeah. just have no immune system to really be able to fight it off. Treatment for PHF is the same as anaplasmosis, mm-hmm. which we're studying. The old oxytetracycline, hindgut ulcers, mm-hmm. and like I have a hard time talking about hindgut ulcers because we have real hindgut ulcers which is right dorsal colitis what is that caused by so right dorsal colitis we can also kind of call that inside toxicity so our non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like bute banamine equiox those are all NSAIDs and the right dorsal colon is really sensitive to these these NSAIDs and they tend to cause ulcerations of the right dorsal colon as well as other areas like the stomach. They can get stomach ulcers from these, but these horses then get a really angry colon and then can have clinical signs like diarrhea and septicemia from right dorsal colitis. And we can diagnose it with an ultrasound on the farm. Yeah, a lot of times we'll be able to identify their right dorsal colon and sometimes that colon will look really thick on ultrasound. So what do you think about the succeed blood occult blood tests that people do to say the horse has right dorsal ulcers or some sort of ulcers in the colon? Yeah, I I haven't done a ton of research on that. I know that is something that people will will utilize to see, but it's maybe not as specific as we kind of want it to be. Yeah, I can't imagine the horses have that much bleeding in their ulcers and that they're red blood cell count, their total protein isn't changing. If mm-hmm. you're telling me that with that test, it's occult blood. Yeah, I, I like using the ultrasound and evaluating some other blood work abnormalities. These guys will often have a low protein as well. Sometimes they're really painful and colicky too. Yeah, they present that way mm-hmm. and that's always why. Just like people, some horses are a lot more sensitive to these medications than others. Some might live on NSAIDs every day for three years and never have an issue and another horse might have NSAIDs for three days in a row and get it. Probably all those school ponies that are living on Butte daily. They're just immune to it at this point. They're going around toting those kids 40 years old on living on Butte for the past two years. There are some cancers horses can get Mm -hmm. uh, in the large colon. Lymphoma Mm -hmm. is common-ish. If a horse is going to get a gastrointestinal cancer, that's going to be the one that it likely will get. And those guys often won't present acutely with diarrhea or clinical signs, but they might be ones that have kind of this chronic diarrhea, but they otherwise seem okay or losing some weight. So we can kind of differentiate lymphoma from another inflammatory bowel condition that might cause chronic diarrhea. And we're just going to do a biopsy of those. Mm You can do biopsies surgically. That's mm-hmm. kind of expensive and probably traumatic. So and probably only if they're going to colic surgery yeah. anyway. Farm, we can do rectal biopsies. Mm-hmm. 
fairly easily. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy situation. Yep. It can be done in under an hour and have results in about a week. Every week, yeah. And you could also maybe take bi uh, biopsies of the duodenum with a mm -hmm. gastroscope. Yep, we pass the scope all the way to that first part of the small intestine and get tiny little biopsies through the scope. And we usually like to do them together. I think together because we can't get the middle 60 mm -hmm. feet of the horse's colon, but we can get the you know, two, the two, extreme the ends. two extreme ends and at least put together something and we'll probably do an abdominal synthesis just mm -hmm. in case to look at the protein in the free in the, in the abdomen. So we get as much pictures we can uh, without having to go to surgery. I don't, I think we've only time I've ever seen that is you're right. They went to colic surgery and they you just took some, about. they took some pieces while they're at mm -hmm. it. And then there's the old pony that just or the old horse that has some formed fecal balls and then it goes soft. What do we, we have a name for that? Fecal water syndrome. That sounds like a made up name. So it's, it's kind of hard to deal with. These horses don't seem to have any other clinical signs associated with it. Their blood work is normal. We've ruled out other causes of this condition and sometimes it can be associated with dietary changes like being out on grass or um, hay or grain changes and other times we just can't figure out exactly why it's happening but the horse doesn't seem to be affected otherwise. I've seen from other practitioners put these horses on metronidazole with no success and then they cause clostridial diarrhea. Yeah, so trying to treat these with antibiotics may or may not be beneficial. Probably not the best idea. And likely not due to a yeah, bacterial change, issue. Yeah. We have tried doing fecal transplants, so yes. taking feces from a otherwise healthy horse. Quote unquote healthy. <laughs> and <laughs> transplanting it through a nasogastric tube to just kind of change the gut flora. And I think that has shown some success in some of these cases. Yeah, I think it was a published paper mm -hmm. where they had like 60% yeah. success with it. So, um, it, you know, we worry a little about how healthy is that horse when we're mm -hmm. taking poop from another horse into another one. But um, it seems to work, it's a little gross. Yeah. The students want to vomit when we make yeah. them mix it up and we tell make them the, the whole... poop slurry. Yeah, make poop slurry. Cattle do this all the mm -hmm. time. Like we have two cows at Ohio State that are rumen donors and you can, uh, they have holes in them. We can get their rumen juice and yeah. you transfonsinate uh, another ruminant. So it's kind of the same idea. And this, believe it or not, whether you want to think about it or not, happens in human medicine all the time. This all the is time. how they treat clostridial infections Yeah, in you take... They, they dehydrate the poop pills. Yeah, it's like a pill. <laughs> it's a pill. It's a poop pill. I guess if we were a hard press and had more poop pills, you could slurry <laughs> some poop into you. I want yeah. a feeding tube. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to taste it. No. It sounds miserable. But yeah, that's, that is how they treat them in humans. And, mm. and microbiome. It's so amazing. We have a study here with Janessa Winston where they are feeding skinny dogs poop to fat dogs, mm -hmm. and the fat dogs are losing weight. Yeah, there's a... Just by changing amazing. the microbiome. It might affect other conditions like asthma and all yeah. kind of things. Diabetes in people. So I, to come. I want to find some skinny person's poop. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. See if I can change my microbiome. Some of my friends have done the trial here and they had to like stop like giving it poop pills because it was losing so much weight. Like it was really? working so well. On yeah. the dogs? On the dogs, oh. yeah. Dogs is pretty wow. cool. And the study was done in rats originally. Yeah. So microbiomes are pretty important, mm -hmm. which is why we try not to give it antibiotics because we don't want to destroy its microbiome. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go to your farm. We're going to we're gonna have to spend some money to do some mm -hmm. diagnostics, unfortunately. So what is going to be like 
a baseline. We already mentioned the ultrasound, so that's a pretty important one. Just general blood work, CBC to look at their white blood cell count, red blood cell count, uh, chemistry to look at their liver values, protein values. We'll probably run that serum amyloid A to see if there's anything kind of infectious potentially going on. And then we're gonna wanna run some other diagnostics. We can run a, a fecal PCR and that will look for all of those infectious things we kind of chatted about. Salmonella, coronavirus, clostridial species, Potomac horse fever. We'll be able to kind of test the feces for those organisms and get an answer pretty quickly. Yeah, and we, we PCR is very sensitive. Mm -hmm. It's crude though, right? It's just going to find pieces of DNA. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean the organism's live. Yeah. But if you find it, you have to be pretty suspicious that it's there. Especially if they're having those clinical signs yeah. alongside it. And ideally, we pull it when the horse is febrile, right? Because yeah. they shed a little more when they're febrile. So, yeah, we send it off. There's a lab down in Kentucky that does it for us. I think they're trying to do some of it here. Like, they're working on getting some of the primers. We can do salmonella here, yeah. but some of the others I don't yeah. think we have available yet. And the test is not cheap. It's not. It's almost $300. But it is pretty important because it is going to lead us down that infectious route versus you know, some of these other causes of diarrhea that might not need. Yeah type of treatment and isolation and isolation you need to know if you're going to be dealing with a salmonella issue on your farm versus something something different because your other horses are going to be exposed and we'll get it mm -hmm. and then they'll get diarrhea yeah. <laughs> and it'll keep going yeah. and going until the whole farm gets salmonella there are a lot of reports of hospitals that have shut down for salmonella mm -hmm. um, because they have one horse with salmonella who does not move to isolation in time. Walked through the hospital. Walked through the hospital or they don't have as good biosecurity protocols. A lot of horses will get sick. I think it's very important to do this test. I know it's expensive and you could make an argument that, it, you know, salmonella, coronavirus, we're going to treat the horse's clinical symptoms. But we really need to know for like herd health purposes yeah. what's going on. Especially if this is like a boarding facility with a lot of other horses on the property, you're going to want to know what that horse has. The fecal egg count is important to do, I think, in the younger ones, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be more likely chronic diarrhea you're yeah. dealing with. Sometimes parasitism can be the cause for that. So yeah. maybe not in the acute febrile infectious one, but on some of those more chronic diarrheas, we might suggest a fecal egg count. We want to talk about why is this an emergency? So we're out at the farm, we see your horse, it has a fever, it has bounding digital pulses, and has like pipe stream diarrhea. We're going to tell you to go to the hospital. Yeah, it, it's just not something we can manage well in the farm. So horses, I think we chatted about it in one of our other ones about fluids. Most average size horses need at least 24 liters of fluids a day, but they're losing a lot of fluids through their diarrhea. Us giving them 10 liters of fluid on the farm is not enough. That's probably one bowel movement. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't come up with those yeah. losses, and they're at really high risk for kidney failure at that point then. Yeah, that's usually what gets them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, acute kidney disease just due to dehydration. And we mentioned some of the medications that, you know, these horses will often be on. Banamine for pain and fevers, potentially Oxytet for Potomac horse fever. All renal toxic. Those are all bad for the kidneys, especially if they're not hydrated. And genomycin, if you were to mm -hmm. use that, renal toxic. All the NSAIDs are renal yes. toxic. <laughs> yeah, not so good. So we're re using renal toxic drugs in a dehydrated animal. That sounds like a recipe for the poor kidneys to yeah. not do so good. Bacteria. 
not only is in the colon, but it goes across the colon because the colon gets thinner and it's not as strong and it gets in the bloodstream. And then we get uh, endotoxemia, which is gonna probably lead to septicemia. Mm -hmm. And then septicemia leads to laminitis. And then we're not looking so hot. Yeah, so these guys, they're not already foot sore, acting like they have clinical signs of laminitis, or even if they are, we're gonna put them in ice boots 24 seven. And the only way to really successfully do that is in the hospital. I mean, unless you're gonna save the horse the whole time. And and we've shown in endotoxemia studies, I say we, Australia mostly, <laughs> has shown that if you put the horse in ice, even after an endotoxic event, you can prevent laminitis. So putting it in ice as soon as possible, of course, is always better. But if it's a couple hours delayed, we can still save them. Yeah. The leg that wasn't in ice got laminitis and the horse had to be euthanized. We also had a study here a couple years ago. Holcomb looked at the uh, ice melting, right? Mm -hmm. If we let it melt, and it was almost worse if you had ice that melted, new ice melted ice. So like we're on top of it now after that study was published of keeping new ice on everywhere. Two hours, they're yeah. changing it, and it's not super beneficial. It's great if you're trying to do ice, but doing it in the morning and the evening, having those long hours in between, yeah. it, it's been shown that that's no longer beneficial. It's just if it's continuous. And they, they had a trend, which is not statistically significant, but a trend towards being worse. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it goes back to like reperfusion injury, yeah. right? So you- Hot, so, cold. Yeah, hot, cold, slow the blood flow down, let it go, it's not very good, so. All right, well, I think that kind of wraps up diarrhea, unless you have some more to add to it. The, I don't have too much more, except that we can do the biopsies on the farm mm -hmm. for you know chronic weight loss or chronic yeah. diarrhea horses. The biopsies are, are easily done and very useful diagnostic information usually mm -hmm. uh, comes from that. Diagnostics easily done, and if that's going on with your horse, let us know. And there's no magical cure for endotoxemia. No, there's a lot of medications we can give them for supportive care and to kind of help, but it's better to treat as soon as possible versus letting it get more Yeah, because like petoxyphylline hasn't been shown to be very useful, and didn't you guys just show polymyxin B wasn't very useful-ish? No? I think it depends on who you talk to. Depends on who you talk to. Okay, so polymyxin B is staying in the controversial <laughs> realm. What about petoxyphylline? Um, doesn't have a TNF alpha one, but yeah. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I think depending on on who is the clinician, mm -hmm. will use some of these meds versus not. I yeah. I think polymixin clinically helps. Okay. Others have different opinions. Others doesn't think it. That's also renal toxic though. Yeah. <laughs> DMSO. Throw some yeah. DMSO at them. No, no DMSO for you. Not for me. Not for me. I love the smell of it. I'm going to give him DMSO. I don't even, who knows what it does, but I love the smell of it. We're definitely not going to give him steroids. No. Endotoxemia is a pretty big killer in humans. Mm -hmm. uh, septicemia, people die all the time from septicemia. Yeah. So it's not like we are behind the eight ball. It's just a very hard thing to treat. Mm -hmm. Drugs are limited, what we can use. And as you can hear, our bantering back and forth, uh, debatable how successful some are first off. <laughs> versus others. Um, try it all, like we want as successful as possible. And sometimes in veterinary medicine, we don't have all the answers and we have to use our best clinical guess um, and weigh the benefits of how much risk it can cause versus not. So thought polymyxin B made sense from what it did, it binds LPS. Mm -hmm. I've never, I don't know if I've seen a clinical difference with it. But. I always want petoxyphylene to work, but every study says it doesn't. <laughs> We've gone uh, quite long this time. We're getting some feedback that people want to talk about joint disease 
next week or in two weeks or so. So we'll uh, we'll uh, have to do some research on that. There's a lot of um, how can I say this non FDA approved medications being administered to horses. So it's going to be hard, I think, to do a lit search of the usefulness of some of these, but we can at least find what their parent compounds are and then report back. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Thanks for listening. Again, uh, if you like it, subscribe, share with your friends, and follow us uh, on Doc Yardley if you have any other additional questions. Thanks.